The following recording is from the Parramatta Christian Church pulpit series. These sermons are freely available at pcc.org.au. And so I'm really looking forward to that. But before I enjoy that time with my family, um, this sermon to bring, and I'm really encouraged about this message. And so if you've got your Bibles with you, please grab those and find First Peter. And once you've found First Peter, just place your thumb in chapter 2, and we'll come to the text in just a minute. But um, I want to ask you, in starting, uh, how many of you saw the recent blockbuster TV program series, The Ninja Warrior? Yeah? Pretty good show, pretty good show. Well, this morning, I feel like a ninja warrior in, in, because of this sermon, because today, as you're going to see... I'm not only wrapping up the Unbroken series that we've been thinking about in First Peter, but also I'm wrapping up the Radiate theme for the year. And in addition to that, it's Father's Day, and so I need to mention you know, a thing or two for you dads, for us dads. And so you can see a couple of challenges in the message today. And so please pray for my ninja warrior skills. I want to be nimble today. I want this message to be helpful and transformative. And so if you've still got your thumbs in First Peter chapter 2, just flick them open and we're going to come to a short passage that I believe really wraps up and summarizes the series and the theme really, really well. And that passage is a very short passage, verses 11 and 12. Don't be put off by the fact that it's a short passage. It's a chili. It's small, but it's hot. And so let's come to the text this morning. Verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, what's implied there is doing wrong at first, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits you. For obvious reasons, I've entitled this concluding sermon, The Wrap-Up the wrap-up. So how about we pray? Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this day. Thank you that you are the Father, the Father of love, the Father of light, the Father of the cosmos. And I pray, Lord, that as we come around your word, as your people, as your children, that we would be stirred, that we would be encouraged, that, Lord, there would be an impartation this morning, Father, that your word would be sown into the hearts of your people and germinate and cause fruitfulness, ultimately helping us to radiate your Son in this needy world. And so, Lord God, to that end, I pray, amen. Well, in the previous passage... Peter has gone out of his way to describe our relationship to God in terms the Old Testament uses exclusively to describe the nation of Israel. For for example, and this is wonderful in verse 9, he says that now in Christ we are the chosen people of God, but not only the chosen people of God, but also in verse 9, the royal priesthood of God, but not only the royal priesthood, but also in verse 9, the holy nation of God in Christ, but not only the holy nation and the royal priesthood and the chosen people of God, but also God's special possession, which is incredible. We are his treasured cherished 
people because we cherish his son, the Messiah. And so this is incredible. Those who acknowledge their need for Jesus, this is the good news for those in the world, those who acknowledge their need for Jesus and subsequently put their trust in the Savior King, they gain by grace and we have gained by grace the privilege of being a part of God's household, his family, the new community of God. And it's off the back of this remarkable description of our new identity in Christ as the people of God that the Apostle Peter urges us in our passage to live out this new identity so that others may see our lifestyles and actually be drawn into the new community of God. And so as we move through this sermon, I want you to keep those two ideas in mind, identity and community living out our new identity as believers in order to see people come into God's community, namely the church. And so the question that I want us to think about and engage with this morning is the what question. What, what does that actually look like? What, what does it mean for us to live out this new identity that we have in Jesus? Well, Peter is going to help us out because he gives us really a negative component to living out the new identity that we have and also a positive component. The negative component is in verse 11. And the positive aspect of living out this new Christian identity is in verse 12. And so the negative aspect first, verse 11. He says, living out this new identity means, involves for us deliberately and habitually staying away from self-destructive behavior. That's what he says. Listen, this is what he says in verse 11. He says, dear friends, he's talking to all of us here this morning. He's saying, dear friends, I urge you to what? abstain. That term means to put some distance between yourself and, he goes on to say, sinful desires. I urge you to do that. I urge you to stay away from these self-destructive, harmful things. Now, the term urge is quite strong. It means to call to one side. And the context obviously suggests call to one side urgently. It's like what I do when sometimes my two-year-old Maddie runs ahead of me in a busy car park and I shout out to her, Maddie, Maddie, come back to daddy. There's nothing casual or calm about my demeanor because she's my little girl and it's not safe to play with cars, especially when you're a two-year-old. And so I cry out to her, Maddie, Maddie. And you know what she does? She looks behind and she smiles and she runs ahead. And so I've got to chase her, grab her and save the day and say, look, Naughty, naughty, and she can do sometimes a little smack just to help her realize that it's dangerous. It's a deadly thing to play with the cars. Well, Peter is saying a similar thing here. That's what he's getting at. He's saying it's a deadly thing to flirt with sinful desires. It's a dangerous thing. And so whatever you do, put some distance between yourself as a Christian and these harmful, sinful desires. Now, if we're going to do that, we, we need to understand what Peter means when he says sinful desires. Agreed? We need to understand what, is he, what does he mean? Because interestingly, sinful desires does not mean what you may think it means initially. Sinful desires, you may think are like, okay, well, it's pornography, you know, getting angry with your spouse or theft or murder, the Ten Commandments. And of course, those things are included, but it's not the primary meaning of the word here, sinful desires. The Greek term is epithumia, and it literally means over-desire. 
It means excessive desire, not merely for bad things, but for good things. And so if we over-desire, if we epithemia good things, those good things end up becoming bad things, and they can enslave us. For example, image. Image. Is, a, is it a bad thing to maintain a healthy body, a healthy image? No. I guess we should all look after our temples better, right? But when our image becomes the be-all and end-all for us, when we live and die to make ourselves look better so that we appear more attractive to others, when, when our image is the be-all and end-all and the pri- primary thing in our hearts to find our joy and satisfaction, that will no doubt lead to a form of slavery and misery. And, and here, listen, I want to be open and transparent with you this morning. I'm not speaking theoretically. I'm speaking from experience because this is my story. This is my testimony. Before I was a believer, I made my image the be-all and end-all. And, and I, I trained really hard. I was, as Karen mentioned, you know, a gym junkie. I went to the gym like five, six days a week. And my day off, when I had that day off, I felt guilty for not being at the gym. I was just addicted to it, addicted to my image. And also, and again, I just want to be up front with you, that led to an eating disorder. I suffered with bulimia as a young guy. And for the first couple of years in in my Christian life, I struggled with it because I'd made it my God. And Nat was here this morning and I got a bit emotional and I don't feel as emotional now because I've already preached the message once. But when Nat was here, you know, I said, just ask Nat, in the first two years of our marriage, we had so many arguments. And most of them, like 99% of our arguments, were around food and diet and image. And I remember this one time when Natalie brought home a brown paper bag, and it wasn't Jack Daniels. It was something, <clears throat> it was something a lot worse, or I thought it was a lot worse then. It was McDonald's. Not Jackie D's, but Mackie D's. And I just went off my nut. I, I lost it because, because for me, healthy eating was so important. It's like, how dare you? And Natalie likes a good fight, and so she likes to push the boundaries. And so she, she kind of came in, and she's wafting mackers around the house. And I went crazy. I mean, this big blue, this big Barney, and Natty, Natty's never shy. And so she gives as, as much as I gave. And she, you know, I won't give you all the details. But, but it ended with us in tears. Praying, crying to God, God, please, would you do a work in my heart? This is ruining our marriage. And praise be to God, maybe nine months after that, we look back and we thought, hold on a minute. We haven't had an argument about this image thing, food thing, diet thing for about three months. And we praised God because God had dealt with it, is dealing with it in my heart. And so image, it can just become this cancerous thing that ruins relationships. What about money? Is money a bad thing? No. Money is a good servant, but a bad master. When we epithemia money, it becomes a controlling thing. When we need money to find our self-worth, maybe in the things that money can buy, that's a dangerous thing. Consumerism ends up in greed, and again, that's cancerous, and that will ruin your heart and ruin relationships as well. Money great servant, a bad master. What about acceptance? Is it, is it a bad thing to want to be liked? No. 
Esteem? No. Respect? No. But if it becomes an epithemia, this over-desire that you find your worth and identity in other people's opinions of you, that potentially can be devastating. It's like the spinning plates performance. Have you seen that? When the guy is on the stage and he's got the spinning plates and he spins the plates, you know, and it starts off really well and easy, but then after a while, he's got like eight plates spinning, spinning, spinning. You're kind of thinking, one's going to crash, one's going to crash. Well, it's like that. If you're addicted to people's approval of you, you've got to keep everyone happy, 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 happy. Keep them happy, happy, happy. And that's tiring. And it's impossible. It's impossible. And so this epithemia of, you know, acceptance and how people view you, again, is a cancerous thing that will ruin your heart and also ruin relationships as well. And so that's not to mention other things such as work. We're thinking about faith and work and we're to worship God through our work, but work is not to be our God. Or relationships, is it wrong to desire a relationship? No, no, no. But if you have an epithemia, if you over-desire it, you may end up in a toxic relationship. And the list goes on and on and on. So the headline I want you to catch this morning is that when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, that ultimate thing becomes a God, small g, an epithemia. And every God other than Jesus, the Son of God, will end up enslaving you. If you worship it, if you bow down to it, if you try and find your life and your purpose and security and satisfaction in that God small g, it will end up making you a slave. And here's the thing, slaves become ineffective witnesses for Jesus. And so you know why now Peter is looking at us squarely in the eye in verse 11 and lovingly saying, hey, whatever you do, stay away from these sinful desires because that's going to affect your witness. So stay away because I want you to radiate for Jesus in the world. I want your lifestyle to be appealing and attractive. We're going to see that in just a moment. And so if you're here this morning, you're thinking, okay, I want to stay away from these sinful desires, but, but, but how do I do that? Well, Peter lovingly, pastorally gives us at least three images to motivate us to stay away from these harmful things and actually pursue Christ and radiate for him. Three images. Number one, warfare, war. Number two, immigration. I'll explain that one. And number three, family. Family. So war first. He says in verse 11, I urge you to abstain from these sinful, harmful things. Why? Well, they war against what? Your soul. Which war against your soul? So where's the battle being played out? Does that, does that mean that you know, we don't have enemies? At the, of course. But our greatest enemy is Internal, as one writer puts it, Warren Wiersbe, in his commentary, he says these words. He says, our real battle is not with people around us, but with passions within us. He's talking about epithemias, those unrenewed, uncrucified parts in our heart that seek to usurp in our hearts the lordship of Jesus. That's our enemy, enemy number one, our biggest enemy. And so the point is, your greatest enemy is not the devil. Ooh, he's a great enemy. Don't want to make light of that fact. But as Christians, your greatest enemy is the person you see each morning when you stand to clean your teeth. And I'm not talking about your spouse. You, me. One famous evangelist, D.L. Moody, Dwight Moody, he said this about himself. I have more trouble with D.L. Moody than with any man I know. 
is true of all of us. The man I see in the mirror each morning is my greatest impediment to holiness and godliness. Stop saying the devil made me do it. The devil doesn't make you do anything. You do it. He pulls those strings. He pulls on those epithemias in your heart. But you've got to allow him to do that. You've got to give him the foothold in your heart to actually do that. We're responsible for our lives. And so we need to remain vigilant because we're in this war. Yeah, we need to remain vigilant. You've got to know your own heart. Your Achilles heel, strange image, but your Achilles heel in your heart. You need to know it, or it might be plural. If you, if you, if you, you know, for me, if you're me, it's plural. I've got many Achilles heels, and I need to be vigilant. It's like when I, I go running at Lake Power. If you've been to Lake Power, if you've taken a walk around Lake Power, it is treacherous. If you've, you know, uh, run around there, it's, it's rocks everywhere and it's overgrown roots. Who has, who's walked around there, by the way? Yeah. Anyone attempted to run round? Walk fast. Well done, Junior. There's rocks, there's overgrown tree roots in the summer months. There's red belly black snakes that you've got to contend with. And I've contended with them. I've seen a few. And so when I run around there, I need to remain vigilant, not paranoid. I'm not talking about paranoia. I'm talking about vigilance. Just, okay, there's a rock there, you know. And I just, but when I lose focus, guess what happens? I slip, I trip, I turn an ankle. And, and it's all over for that particular run. And so it's the same with our hearts. We need to remain vigilant. And how do we do that? One of God's chief ways to help us to be vigilant with these epithemies in our heart is each other. Christian community. Doing life with other believers. Not just having superficial, shallow community and calling that Christian community, but getting to know each other, like truly know each other doing life with each other, getting to know someone so well that you trust them with your heart, that you confess sin to them and they to you and you hold each other lovingly, honestly, accountable. It's one of God's greatest gifts to us, Christian community. And so that's why we encourage connect groups so so that is nurtured, so that happens, so that together we can, you know, keep each other accountable. And, and help one another be vigilant because we all have blind spots. And if you're sitting there thinking, I don't have one, that is your one. That's your blind spot. And so we need to be vigilant and we need each other. Christian community, that's warfare. Number two, immigration. I urge you as foreigners and exiles, immigrants in other words, and you know, simply his point is, you used to be at home in this world. Before Jesus won your heart, the world had your heart. And you used to tap root life and meaning. You used to draw up from the world, you know, what, what you f- felt was important and necessary for your identity. But that's not you anymore. That's his point. You used to be citizens of this fallen, cursed world, but now you're citizens of heaven. You're just pilgrims passing through. You're a pot plant, not a tree. <laughs> just moving along citizens of the king. And so he's saying, basically, resemble Jesus. You're immigrants. You're immigrants. Yeah, you're in the world, but you're not of it. We all know that you know, statement really, really well. We're familiar with that, but it's so true. And so we're immigrants. We're immigrants. Number three, family. And I find this the most helpful. What does he say at the beginning of verse 13, uh, 11? He says, dear friends. 
difference. And the word there is um, ag- agapetoi, and when translated, it's beloved, beloved. And in context, he's talking about the Father's love for us. It's Father's Day. Well, he loves us. This incredible love. He thinks the world of us. He gave his son for us. As C.S. Lewis said that the Son of Man became a man so that men could become sons of God. And in Jesus, we are now the sons and the daughters of God. We're a part of his household. We're a part of his family. He thinks the world of us. He cherishes us, treasures us. And so when we reflect on that truth, why would we want to sin? Why would we want to displease or grieve his heart? He's our heavenly father. And so the way to wage war is through reflection, reflecting on his goodness towards us in Jesus. And the more we reflect, our devotional lives will become stronger and they will be nurtured and cultivated. And we'll just want to please our heavenly father more. Yeah? So you can see the logic here when Peter says, beloved, beloved, I urge you. It's this warm-hearted plea. It's this family plea. Stay away from these things because I love you and that's not going to be good for you. Those things are going to be destructive and harmful. And so let me encourage you all, pursue the devotional life. Cultivate intimacy with Jesus. And I'm especially talking to dads here, us dads. Pursue the, the, the devotional life. Let that be the thing your kids, my kids, see in us. Us not chasing after stuff and security and success, but let them see us chasing after the Savior with all our hearts. You know, as I, I heard, I read some time ago, a wonderful statement. I believe it's so true, and it, and it goes as follows. And it's talking to dads. The best way to love your kids is to love their mother more. <laughs> I love that. I love that. When I read it, I felt convicted, but I loved it. I thought, yeah, it's true. But you know what's more true? Loving Jesus more. Loving your Savior. Loving their Savior more. The best way to love your children is to love Jesus more. Because when you love him more, you're going to spend time with him and his sweetness and his character is going to rub off on you so that your parenting will become more sweet and more nurturing. And that's the greatest thing, surely, we can do for our children. Yeah, teach them how the world works. Yeah, dads, we we have that honor and that responsibility to teach our kids the things of the world, how it operates, how it works. But even more so, oh, the legacy we can leave for our children and our children's children is, hey, you know, dad, or you know, granddad, he loved Jesus with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he expressed that by devoting himself to the Savior. And we can see the beautiful ripple effect of that because here we are too, worshiping the Savior. Amen? So family. So that's, I guess, the the negative aspect. Verse 11, you stay away from these self-destructive desires and he gives us these images to help us do that. Now the positive counterpart, verse 12. He says that living out this new identity as the people of God, this new Christian identity also positively includes embracing a lifestyle that radiates Jesus. Verse 12. He says, Live such good lives among the pagans or unbelievers. That's what the term means, Gentiles, those who don't know the love of Jesus yet. And what's interesting and insightful is that the the word good, kalos, 
was, I'm, I'm using a lot of Greek, I know, and, and the Greeks this morning, you know, our, our Greek members this morning, they were all happy, you know, because I was using Greek, and like, yeah, you go for it, brother. Well, the word kalos was used in ancient Greek <clears throat> to convey outer beauty, external beauty, or handsome features. And so what Peter is saying to us here is that our lifestyles as Christians need to be beautiful. They need to be attractive. They need to be appealing and winsome and commendable, admirable. They they need to be beautiful. And so the question becomes, well, what kind of lifestyle um, will will make us more attractive, more appealing? And and Peter tells us in the following passage. It's a big chunk, and I'm not going to go through all of it. But basically, essentially in verse 13 of chapter 2, all the way down to verse 16 of chapter 3, he tells us what the beautiful life consists of. And it consists of honoring those in leadership, respecting those in authority. And we need to uh, remember that the guy who was in charge then was Emperor Nero. And he didn't only have a few screws loose. He had a few bolts loose. He was a lunatic. He persecuted Christians. He tied them up to pillars. He threw them in boiling oil. And here's Peter saying, yeah, I know that, but you've got to honor him. Not meaning you've got to agree with everything he does or says, but but you're not to slander him. You're not to be disrespectful. You're still to be respectful, which is incredible thought and it would have been so countercultural in the first century because he was a first class goose Nero it's like just slander him you know join in with us and so for a believer not to participate would have been very odd and very questionable and they would have asked no doubt why don't you join us now you know in slandering Emperor Nero and, and there was an opportunity there would have been an opportunity to share why the reasons for that and, and then he talks about, and we've already thought about it this morning, uh, as Shamal shared his story from his workplace, the Faith and Work series that we looked at as a part of our Radiate theme. He, he addresses it as well in Second uh, Peter. And he talks about slaves and you know, boss, um, uh, slave masters, and I guess that principle can be applied to how we work as Christians. And that as Christians, we can actually fulfill the two great commandments through our work, in our work, that we can love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, by the way we work, it can become worship, not worshiping work, that's epithemia again, that's making God, work a God, but actually worshiping God through our work and loving our neighbor through our work as well by doing good work. Again, that's going to make us beautiful. Our lifestyle is appealing and attractive, not just, you know, uh, working hard only when the boss is around, but then when he's not around, just being on Facebook, you know, just checking your status. But working hard when the boss is there and when he's not there. And over lunch, you don't gossip about the boss. No, you're respectful. You're courteous. That is appealing. That is attractive. And again, that's counter-cultural. Then he talks about relationships. He talks about wives with unbelieving husbands. And he, he encourages them to not focus on external beauty, but inner beauty. So that through that, being beautiful in that sense, not you know, um, uh, 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 being hot on, on their husband's collar 
and, and, and not um, you know, saying negative things, that through that lifestyle, some husbands may even come to Jesus. But then, remarkably, in verse 7, he says these words to husbands. He says, be considerate with your wives. Now, in the first century, that was extremely countercultural. Because husbands back then saw their wives as playthings, as trophies. And they would manipulate and even control. And so for him to say, <clears throat> love them, be gentle. It's like, what? And, and of course, through that lifestyle of loving their wives, that would no doubt arouse curiosity leading to opportunities to share Jesus with others. And so as believers, yeah, we need to adopt all that Peter has just told us and apply it to our own Christian lives. But in addition, I want us to think about two, I guess, habits or rhythms that we would do well to maintain in our own Christian lives, okay? These are really, really practical, and I trust you're going to find them helpful. Number one, to bless others or to be generous. Number two, hospitality or to eat with unbelievers, having a home open for unbelievers to come and eat. So firstly, to bless. The term bless literally means to add strength to someone's arm. It's a beautiful image to add strength to someone's arm, which it conveys um, alleviating people's stress or tension. You know, if you think about it, if someone's carrying a heavy box, you know, you know it's like you've got little kids and you're walking around the shops and you just you feel like your arms are going to drop off. Well, 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 the same is, is being uh, conveyed here by the sense to, to, to bless it's that you, you can carry someone's burden, you can shoulder their burden and actually help them. And there are two main ways that we can do that, to bless others. Words of affirmation, words of encouragement, and acts of service. Acts of service. Words of affirmation, simple, but profoundly effective. And again, countercultural. Just going over to a colleague and saying something nice about them, you know, commending them for the good work they're, they're doing. And, and if you have colleagues that don't really do good work, well, we'll find something good about them and commend them for it. I've, I've been kind of adopting this uh, on the soccer field uh, with my soccer teammates because my natural reaction when one of the other team members does something wrong, like if they don't pass to me or something, I'm like, hey! I'm over here, kind of, why didn't you pass to me? And that's, sometimes that's how I am. And so what I've been trying to do now is encourage them. It's really hard. I struggle with it. Because internally I'm like fuming. I'm over here. I'm the goal scorer, as Karen mentioned last week in her sermon. Thank you for that. Thank you. I scored two goals, everybody. I just want to let you know. And I won for the team the grand final. Image is still an issue for me, right? And Karen is making me very poor because I've got to pay her every time she says something nice about me in sermons. Where was I? That's right, the soccer field. Image, right. Yeah. So, but instead of saying something, it's like, hey, you know, good effort. You know, you're doing well, you're playing well. And even when they're not playing well, they come on, you're doing well. And guess what normally happens? They start playing better. They start playing better. And you see, encouragement, words of affirmation, they are powerful because our Heavenly Father affirms us all the time in Christ. And when we tap into His affirmation, we feel encouraged, built up, stirred. And so come on, let's be like our Heavenly Father and encourage others. 
words of affirmation. What about acts of kindness? Who doesn't like to be on the receiving end of a practical act of service or kindness? Again, my soccer teammates, we had the end of season celebration and they were celebrating me. I know we were celebrating. I'm sorry, Dash. We were celebrating our victory. And some of the guys, you know, it was the end of your party. And so they were, they were partying, uh, having a few too many. And one of the guys there, I got you know, into a conversation with him. And he said, you know, I, I, I live in Rouse Hill. And because I've been drinking, um, I've got to take two buses home. And it's going to take me over an hour. And we were just Northmead, the Northmead Bowling Club. And I said, hey, you know, um, I live in Blacktown. I can take you home. It's kind of en route, you know. It's kind of en route. He'd had a few too many, and so he didn't really get that. So I was just, it's kind of en route. And so he, he jumped in the car, and for the 20 minutes taking him home, we had this incredible conversation. And, you know, I, I spent the whole season with him and never had a conversation with him, but just that simple act of kindness opened up a situation, an opportunity, and we started speaking. And he told me about his son, and and check this out, his son, 16-year-old, he's the fastest 400-meter runner in Australia. He does the 400 meters in uh, 46 seconds. And I thought I was good, I'm doing it at 65. I I, I just totally deflated when he told me that. But I was like, that's really great. And we had this conversation, and he even asked me about my faith. Simple act of kindness. So apply that. Maybe knock on a neighbor's door. You, you need to build a relationship with them first, you know, especially if there's an elderly person. Say, hey, look, you're like, do you want some help? Mow your lawn or something. And if you haven't built that relationship, she's going to think you just want my jewelry, you know. So build that relationship <laughs> with them. And maybe you've got a, a young couple, a young family that you know, or a single mom, you know, and she's looking after kids, and it's really, really hard. She's had not had a night off for, for a long, long time, or the couple haven't had a date night. And, of course, you need to build that relationship with, again, just offer, hey, would you like me to babysit for you so you can just go out, paint the town red or green, you know, just have a good night together? Simple, profound. What about helping a colleague move, etc., etc.? Be creative. Come on. I want you to apply this. That's a really good point. Slip. In one ear, out the other. Just write things down. Even now, write things down. How can I be a blessing to others by doing acts of kindness and acts of service for my colleagues, for my neighbors, for my friends, for my you know, uh, fellow school buddies, you know, uni students. Do, do it, do it, because our lifestyles will become more beautiful and appealing when we do. Second, and this we're going to conclude, and this is good as well, helpful. Eating with others. Generosity, hospitality. Eating with others. British pastor and teacher Tim Chester once posted uh, this question on his blog. He asked, how would you complete the following sentence? Are you ready? The Son of Man came to dot, dot, dot. How would you complete this? Because in the New Testament, there are three references that talk about the coming of the Son of Man. And I think we would be quite familiar with two of them. Anyone want, want to give them a go? Anyone here? The Son of Man came to? Seeking to save the lost. Thank you, Grace. Another one? Son of man came to not to be served, 
but to serve, to give his life a ransom. But what about the other one? Because there's another one. The Son of Man. The Son of Man came, listen, eating and drinking. Luke chapter 7. He came eating and drinking. This is what one writer, Australian writer, and he's written a really helpful book that we're going to be thinking about more in the life of PCC. It's called Surprise the World, Michael Frost. He writes this. While the two first references describe Jesus' purpose in coming, to save the lost by serving them through the giving of himself on the cross, the third, less quoted verse, describes his method of engaging with lost people, namely food. Eating. And some of you are like, yes, amen, because I'm not one of those evangelists who can see someone come to faith by drawing the bridge to life on a napkin, but I can eat with unbelievers. I can do that. You can do that. You want to do that, right? You want to eat with other believers. And so make your house a place of hospitality where you invite your neighbors over. Come on. Again, write that down. Put a date in the diary. Write your colleagues over. It doesn't have to be a lavish meal, but it can be something simple, just dessert, coffee. Or if, if, if you can't do that at the moment, although I encourage you to do that, then, then maybe just shout your colleague lunch or something or have a coffee with them over lunch. It's just profoundly powerful to eat with other believers. You know, we can literally eat people into the kingdom. <laughs> So radiate through generosity and hospitality. Have an open heart and an open home. And that will be uh, bring about a beautiful lifestyle that will arouse curiosity. Mark my words. Because God's on the move. He's working in your relationships. Believe that. Pray that into being. Verse 12. This is the reason why. It's going to be very short. Peter tells us, live such good lives among the pagans that. Come on, church. That. Think about a whole radiate theme for the year. That, why? That they may see your good deeds. He's echoing Jesus. Let your light shine so they may see your good deeds and bring glory to your Father. And glorify God, he says, on the day he visits us. Now, commentators question whether those who end up glorifying God do so in their lifetime or on the day of judgment. But it doesn't really matter. What matters is that Peter wants us to so radiate Jesus that others are drawn to us through our lifestyles and ultimately drawn all the way into the community of God so they'll worship him with you and glorify him with you. This is why we're on the planet, to radiate Christ in all these various ways that we've been thinking about in our radiate theme for the year, through work and speaking words of life and reaching out, hospitality, and the list goes on and on and on, so that people would be drawn to Jesus, amen, that they would see in our lives the grace that has saved us, just oozing out of our lives. And so I want to conclude this series and this theme by showing you a Skip Guides clip, and it's on Peter. And it's classic. It's really, really helpful. And it's really powerful as well. And so I want to leave you with this. Thanks, guys. Grace is God's unmerited favor for us, his crazy love. And the truth is, many times we struggle understanding it. If you find yourself struggling to understand God's grace, don't beat yourself up. Even the disciples struggled with understanding grace. Jesus, is that you? You're alive. I can't believe you're alive. 
Okay, I was in the boat and I wasn't catching any fish, okay? But I heard this voice and the voice said, cast your net to the other side. And so I'm thinking, I'm a fisherman, I know what I'm doing, but I'm not catching any fish, you know? And so I throw that net over there and then a gaggle of fish pop into that net and I'm going, this is a total miracle. Who could have done that? I need to know who told me to throw the net to the other side. And boom, I look up and I mean, there is you. You're looking at me on the seashore going, it is I, the Lord, and you're alive. I can't believe you're alive. This is awesome. Andrew, get out of the boat. Come on. Peter. Yeah. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. I love you. You're alive. This is so great. Good, then feed my sheep. Andrew, get out of the boat. Come on, man. It's him. Peter. Yeah. Do you love me? I love you. Yes. And I'm so sorry about that rooster cluck, and I had no idea what that meant, but I do not. I'm better for it, all right? Okay. Then feed my sheep. Andrew, I'm smiling, but I'm serious. Come on, get out of the boat. It's him. Peter. Yeah. Do you love me? Jesus. Mere words cannot describe the passion that I have for you. I love you. You know everything. I love you. Good. Good. Then feed my sheep. I didn't even know you had livestock. That is so like you, though. There's something new about you all the time. That's what I love about you. Peter, Yeah. do you remember uh, the morning the ladies went to the tomb? Yeah, 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 yeah. We're all in the upper room trying to figure out what to do next, you know, because we thought you were dead. You know, you were dead, you know, and we're trying to figure all that out, you know. And Mary comes running up, and Mary's like saying, beehive, beehive, beehive. And I'm thinking, I'm allergic to bees. Like, keep them out. You know what I'm saying? But as she kept getting closer, I heard her correctly. She was saying, he's alive, he's alive, he's alive. And we're going, who's alive, who's alive? And she said, she was at the tomb, and the tomb was empty. And she said that there was an angel there. And the angel said, go tell the disciples and Peter that everything is okay. He is risen. And so me and John, we hightailed it down there. And if John says he beat me, he's totally lying, all right? I beat him, FYI, all right, you know? And we get down there, and I'm looking in that tomb, and it is. It is empty. There's nothing in there, you know what I'm saying? And I'm like, what does this mean? What does this mean? And John is right there. John is so good with words. He should write a book. He is so good with words. And John said, don't you get it, Peter? This is everything Jesus said he was going to do, and you did it, and it's done. Let's go. This is so great. Wait, yeah. the angel said what? Uh, go tell the disciples and Peter that everything is okay. He is risen. You've risen. Let's go. This he is said what? Go tell the disciples and Peter. Go tell the disciples and Peter. You said my name. Why did you say my name? Peter, that's grace. No, no, I don't, I don't deserve that because that night people kept coming up to me asking me if I belonged to you, if I was with you, and I kept denying you left and right, all right? No, it'll take me my whole life to make up for what I did. It was unforgivable for no, what I did. No, What I did on the cross was meant to take what is unforgivable and make it forgivable. That's my grace. It's not about you. It's always about me. That's grace, Peter.